Listener Production. G'day, it's Jan Fran here, and Qantas is the latest major corporation to throw its weight behind the Yes campaign for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. So what that means is that three of its aircrafts will have a big Yes logo on them. Yeah, so Qantas is joining several major banks, BHP, West Farmers, Woolworths, and other corporates who've come out in support of The Voice. And we saw this kind of corporate support for other campaigns like marriage equality. And in today's briefing, Antoinette Latouf is asking the question, what is the role of corporate activism? Is it a good thing? Should we be concerned about it? And can it backfire? I think people respect companies or people who take a stand, even if they don't believe them. What people don't like is people who stand for nothing or who flip-flop according to public opinion. Yeah, really interesting conversation there. That is our briefing. First, here are today's headlines. It's Friday, the 18th of August. Starting with the news at Brian Houston, the founder of Hillsong has been found not guilty of concealing his father's child sex abuse from the 1970s. A lot of people's lives have been tragically hurt, and for that I'll always be very sad. But I'm not my father. That was Brian Houston there. Uh, This is a story you've been following pretty closely, Tom. You've done a fair bit of reporting on it. Yeah, I've been covering this story for Seven News Spotlight um, throughout the course of this year. So I was at court for the verdict. And the background to these charges actually goes back to the Royal Commission in 2014, where an adult man told the story of being abused by Brian Houston's father, Frank Houston, in the 1970s. That Royal Commission revelation then led to a police investigation of the same case. And Brian Houston was eventually charged under new laws that were enacted because of the Royal Commission. But yesterday, the magistrate ruled that Brian Houston had a reasonable excuse not to take the matter to police because he had reason to believe the victim, who had revealed his identity, and Brett Sengstock, didn't want him to report it to police at the time. And here's what Brett Sengstock actually said outside of court yesterday. Regardless of today's outcome, I have received a life sentence. Blaming the victim is as repulsive as the assaults themselves. So as you can hear there, a painful day for the victim, Brett Sengstock, but it was a huge relief for Brian Houston. Since these charges were laid two years ago, he's had a series of his own problems and they forced him out of the leadership of the very church he founded and Hillsong, that church, is now a much smaller version of its former self. What was it like being in the courtroom yesterday when that verdict was handed down? I mean, were, were you sort of looking intently at his face? Was he shocked? Was he relieved? Yeah, I was sitting um, two rows behind the victim, seeing how he was reacting as he was tanking on that information that this, you know, years of telling his story to the Royal Commission and then the court was ending up in a not guilty verdict. So it was obviously very tough for him. I could see that. And then over to my left on the other side of this very small courtroom um, was Brian Houston and quite a few members of his family. And they were elated. They were just so relieved and very happy at this outcome. Mm. He's not not quite loving the fact that you're there, is he? <laughs> well, Houston. yeah. We, we did a story that, you know, basically pieced it all together at the start of the year and spoke to another one of Frank Houston's um, sexual assault victims back in New Zealand. Uh, and I've been trying to get an interview with Brian Houston since late last year. I'm writing to him many times. And um, that, that meant that often the only times we could put questions to him were outside of court, um, which he 
really didn't like. And uh, he actually had a bit of a go at me yesterday outside of court about that. Here's some of the audio. Brian? You're not just bullying people outside. I'm not bullying you, Brian. So I went back and forth and I said, it's about accountability and you haven't done an interview in two years. Anyway, it was, a, it was an awkward moment and then he went into court. Well, he might change his mind and sit down with you at some point. <laughs> I don't think so somehow. No, I don't think so either. Coming off the back of the Women's World Cup, we are now expected to put in a bid for the Men's 2034 World Cup. We just can't get enough of it. So Matilda Mania broke broadcasting records. 11.15 million Australians nationally um, watched their Mm. match against England in the semifinals. My goodness, that's sort of just under half of the Mm. Australian population ish, if my maths serves me correctly. But that means we'll likely team up with other countries in the Asia Pacific to bring the men's tournament if it does happen for the first time. That's sort of one of the options that, that we're looking at. But we're in we're in a pretty good position to bid now, aren't we? Well, isn't that interesting? You've got the men's comp almost riding off the back of the success of the women's comp. Yeah. Well, I mean, Sam Kerr is the most marketable Australian athlete there is right now, and I'm talking mm. of any sport. Um, she beats Daniel Ricciardo at the F1. She beats golfer Cameron Smith, mm. beats Nick Kyrgios. He's coming in a hot third. So, yeah, that is really interesting. The tables seem to have turned. I do wonder, though, you know, the Europeans, they don't love our time zone. It's it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be difficult convincing them to get up at all hours of the morning to watch major football matches. But if they did it for the women's, they can do it for the men's too. Well, that's an interesting point because I imagine a, a big part of the broadcast dollars are about broadcasting in the most populous nations. And the time zone is a bit tricky down here for Europe and America, um, Africa. So, yeah, interesting factor. wonder if we've gotten them over the mm. line with the Women's World Cup here in Australia this time. Well, we've got a bid in for the 2029 FIFA Club World Cup, which is when where the major clubs compete rather than competing as countries. That's in 2029. If we get that, that could be a good dry run, but let's see. And legendary broadcaster and talk show host Sir Michael Parkinson has passed away aged 88. I loved every minute of it. I've been very, very lucky man indeed. His family released a statement saying he passed away peacefully at home following a brief illness. His career began in the 60s with the BBC. He was best known for his talk show Parkinson on air between 1971 and 2007. An incredible run. What an incredible run. I mean, for a show to last that long as somebody who works in television, it's like, wow, that's a... You must be pretty damn good at what you do. I mean, he had interviewed 2,000 celebrities on this show, everyone from John Lennon and Yoko Ono to Meg Ryan to Muhammad Ali to Dame Edna, mm. you name it, they've been on Parkinson. And he was famous for his style. He, he had this gentle, inquisitive, um, funny style where he, he wasn't a comedian, but there were so many moments of mirth between him and the guests and they... He, he had this way of making them the star of the show, making them shine, and that's what people loved him for, I think. Mm, unsurprisingly, the attributes are flowing from uh, all of the celebrities that he's come into contact with. All right, Antoinette is up next with a briefing about corporates getting behind causes. The spirit of Australia says yes. 
And the spirit of Australia says yes because this will assist reconciliation in a practical way. From the AFL to Rio Tinto and now Qantas, dozens of sporting codes and brands say yes to an Indigenous voice to Parliament. And you may remember this sort of corporate activism in favour of same-sex marriage laws back in 2017, but this time the corporate yes vote is even bigger. But the stakes are higher because polling suggests that public support for the yes vote is dropping. So what are the risks if corporates back this and it gets voted down? Or is their leadership important irrespective of what the outcome is? So these are some pretty tough questions and we have just the person to answer them. Dee Madigan is an award-winning creative director and a labour strategist. She is an author and a speaker as well as panellist on ABC's Gruen Planet. Dee, thanks for joining us. So Qantas is by no means the first big corporate to throw its weight behind the Yes campaign, but it is getting a lot of coverage. Why do you think that is? I think that the no campaign like to target businesses because they know that the businesses have got the big bucks when it comes to promoting causes. So they feel like if they can stop them doing that, they'll kind of stop the pipeline of money going into the Yes campaign. Do you think it's also because there is this visual reminder of their Yes vote because it'll be logos on three planes that are going to fly around the country? Look, absolutely. And, you know, regardless, and I know Qantas has got, you know, a little bit of brand damage at the moment, but it's still probably one of Australia's most heartfelt brands. And so that's it's that link. And Qantas have, you know, in the past done their planes up with Indigenous colours and things like that. Like it's not new for Qantas to, to take, mm. you know, a, a role in, in a social issue. Most of the sporting codes and the majority of the ASX top 20 companies support yes. And yes, corporations have had social responsibility policies for years. Do you think there is now more pressure for them to take a stand? Yes, for two reasons. One, there's no doubt that there is a dollar value attached to ethical corporate behaviour. Companies have their ESG, which is their environmental, social and governance kind of policies, which means you expect companies now to look at their supply chain to make sure that, you know, it's right that they're not ripping people off in a third world country, although a lot of them still are, mm. you know, to make sure that they're recycled, that their packages are recycling. It's all part of being a good citizen. You can't just be a mm. business you know, no business is an island, just as no man is an island. And I think it's important that that companies play roles in society because those companies are essentially people. Yeah, well, nearly 80% of Aussies believe big brands should use their power to make an impact on real world change and social and workplace inequality and a bunch of other issues. That was according to uh, a poll carried out by Nine and an independent poll company. Then there was the Edelman Trust Survey, which two years in a row shows that people actually trust businesses more than they do government and media. So I understand the sense that businesses need to play a role, but how can this trust be managed well and not abused or tokenized because corporations don't always do well necessarily when they take a stand on an issue. Yeah, so the, the sort of prior to social media, we saw companies doing essentially when it came to environmental stuff like greenwashing, where they do these glossy ads saying they're looking after the environment, but then sort of behave like corporate bastards behind closed doors. With social media, that's less likely to happen because they tend to get found out more. But we do hear this thing that's, oh, well, they shouldn't be focusing on this because this bit isn't right. And it's like, well, that's not true either. Companies can and should be able to, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. And it doesn't mean every other part of their company is perfect. 
but it doesn't mean they shouldn't support causes until they're own company is exactly perfect because no no company is exactly perfect. But, you know, it's it's a start to take a stand on things you believe in. Do you think it's fair for the public and consumers to doubt corporates and their motives? Like in, previously they've been accused of jumping on the bandwagon or or virtue signalling or, or this criticism for me rings a little more true, like supporting a cause that actually costs them very little where they have little to no investment. There is no doubt that companies know that there is a dollar value attached to being a good company. People want to invest in companies that do the right thing. So, But you can do something that you know is going to be good for your bottom line and good for society. I I feel like there's this thing where we're just so sort of black and white on those things. It's like, oh, well, you know, unless it's almost like unless you're losing money or losing things from it, then, then your motives aren't right. You know, it can be both things. And that's okay. Virtue signaling, I feel like, is just a, a term invented by Sky News to, to describe people who are actually trying to do the right thing. Um, having said that, there are companies who sort of jump on the bandwagon at the end, as you said, when there's very little to lose from it. But I feel like Qantas jumping on now isn't jumping on the bandwagon because there is stuff to lose from it. They will be accused of a whole lot of virtue signaling by, you know, talking heads on Sky, but they're doing it anyway. They did it in marriage equality. Qantas has always been one of the sort of the first. And I've had my criticisms of Qantas in the past, but when it comes to supporting causes, I feel like they do it for the right reasons. And you mentioned marriage equality. In Australia, we saw corporate activism around the campaign for marriage equality, Um, individually and collectively, businesses of all sizes, um, including Qantas and their well-known but now outgoing CEO joined the campaign. But that was kind of a safer bet, wasn't it? Because there was overwhelming public support for marriage equality and other nations had already legalised same-sex marriage. But it's a bit of a different beast now because the polls, if they are to believe, show that support for the yes vote is waning. Look, I think though when when Qantas came on board marriage equality, it was at the beginning of the campaign where it wasn't necessarily clear that it was going to go ahead. And again, with Qantas coming on now, when support public support is waning, is actually to me a sign that this is done for all the right reasons. The voice may or may not go ahead, but that's not a reason not to support something that you sort of believe in that. And I think marriage equality was a little bit of a far easier sell because everyone in every family knows someone who's gay. So that there's that connection and particularly inside Qantas as Alan Joyce is. But, but this is actually truly actually doing something for people that you may not know at all. And, and, and there is more of a, a risk that they'll get backlash and they'll get sort of, you know, people telling them they're virtue signaling and they should be concentrating on getting planes you know, landing on time and all that sort of stuff. So the fact that they are coming on board now actually, I think, shows a a greater sort of authenticity when it comes to supporting this than than um, perhaps anything. And look, I hate the expression go woke and go broke because it does. It makes me sound like Piers Morgan or someone on Sky News After Dark. But what evidence is there that consumers will punish a brand or a corporation for a political or social decision they don't agree with? Because we did see that play out a little bit in the United States with the Budweiser beer. Ah, but you see, the, the so we've, we've heard this expression, so go woke, go broke so often, and there's no evidence at all to suggest it's true. I remember when Nike supported the kneeling athletes and, and then you had all these photos of people burning their Nikes and, oh, never wear Nikes again. Pretty sure they're all wearing Nikes. The problem with the Budweiser was 
they did the ads and then took them off because they responded to the backlash by saying, oh, well, we're sorry for doing that. And, and that actually, that showed that they weren't supporting, you know, a trans person or having a trans person in their ad for any of the right reasons because if they did, then they wouldn't have just pulled it at the first sign of, you know, angry people, you know, tweeting in caps. The thing is if you're going to do something, you do it or you don't do it. Either of those are okay but don't do it and then not do it because, you know, some, some people are angry at you. That that shows that you've got no courage of conviction and that suggests you weren't doing it for any other reason than you thought it might look make your brand look good. Well, then is that perhaps a lesson for these sporting codes and Qantas and the other corporates who are backing the Yes campaign, that as we get closer to voting, if support dips and opposition mounts, that they remain steadfast and not back down? Or is there merit in sometimes going, you know what, we, we've changed our mind? No, there's no merit in saying you've changed your mind. In, in a way, you end up then just alienating both sides. I think people respect companies or people who take a stand, even if they don't believe in them. What people don't like is people who stand for nothing or who flip-flop according to public opinion. I think it's perfectly acceptable for, for brands to support a cause and, and they should keep supporting the cause Otherwise, they look like they were just, to quote Brita Panahi or one of those, virtue signalling. I want to talk about hypocrisy or keeping these brands accountable because mm. Rio Tinto supports the yes vote, but in the expansion of its iron ore mine in Western Pilbara, like they blasted rock shelters dating back 46,000 years, you know, which they had huge historical and cultural significance. I know you've mentioned they won't get everything right and that doesn't mean that they shouldn't back a cause, but surely we can't just excuse atrocious treatment of Indigenous issues because there's a yes vote. We shouldn't excuse it at all, but equally it's okay for companies to say we've changed and we know we've done the wrong thing and we are supporting the yes vote for maybe those very reasons. You know, I don't know what conversations Rio Tinto had to come to that position, and maybe, you know, the, the public has got absolutely every right to be cynical about companies' motives. That's fine, but I don't think it's okay to say, well, they can't support this because of this. You know, no one, as I said, you know, God forbid, none of us are perfect. None of us have got um, perfect backgrounds, particularly companies, and it's okay for them to want to be better, and I think they should be encouraged to be better. Sounds like you believe that corporate activism is well and truly here to stay. We want corporate activism on a local level. We've always had that. We have club supporting teams. You know, we have, you know, them donating money to local issues and things like that. When it sort of comes on a, a sort of a more national level, there's more questions about it and that's okay as well. But I, I think, as I said, companies are ultimately made up of people and they're existing in a society with people and, and they should be good behaviours in that society and, and I think we should be encouraging it. That was Dee Madigan, an award-winning creative director, political strategist, author, speaker, as well as panellist on ABC's Gruen Planet. Lots to think about there. I guess for me, a couple of takeaways is that I do think we should hold corporations accountable and, and look beyond the PR spin and the possible bandwagon jumping. And some ways you can do this, particularly with the yes vote, is to look to see if these 
corporations or sporting codes to have a reconciliation action plan and that helps provide a framework for an organisation to actually be inclusive in all of their work and to contribute to national reconciliation. I think it's also fair to wonder how many First Nations people are employed at that organisation. If it's far less than 3%, then that's a problem. Are there any First Nations people in leadership or on board roles? What's the track record of this organisation on Indigenous issues? Like, Do they blow up historically and culturally significant sites for profit? Uh, While I do think companies have a role to play in social equity and environment, I do think it's fair that we call out their hypocrisy and we hold them to account and we look past black squares, yes logos, stickers, and see if they really do walk the walk. That is it for your Monday to Friday briefing. Tomorrow, the weekend briefing will drop into your feed with Jamila Rizvi. Jamila, who are you interviewing this week? We are continuing on the weekend briefing. We're continuing uh, with my special series that we're doing at the moment where I talk to some of my favourite guests, both old and new, about a single fascinating subject. And the subject for this weekend's episode is access. I've spoken to disability rights advocate Ellie Dimashelier. She is an extraordinary person who is determined to make change for the one in five Australians who live with disability, which which includes me. And I have had such an excellent conversation with her, a really eye-opening conversation that I think more of us need to sit up and pay attention to. Ellie talks about why people with disability are often left out of important conversations about them that involve them, the experience she's had of being denied access to spaces that matter to her, and why the NDIS cannot be the answer to every medical funding challenge this country has. All right, that's the Weekend Briefing with Jamila Rizvi. Thank you so much for listening to The Briefing. If you love it, please tell your friends about it, share it on social media or rate and subscribe. A big thank you to our hardworking team, our producers, Eleanor Harrison-Dengate, Helen Smith, our social producers, Sarah Boll, Poppy Manzi, Dan Mullins, and our editor, Matt Kuzkuri. Listener.